I just walked in here and I have to find my share one second. Hold on. I honestly don't really know what passion we're on this week. Shahako. Chocolates for the people on Skype. <laughs> they should all get jealous. No, no, they're, they're all coming charging. Yeah. I saved him. Sorry for the tardiness. The one might have issue that came up. I have to dab him. Pasha Shaftim is 14 mitzvahs, 27 prohibitions. Still going on, let's get Decipher what's going on here one moment. Okay, everybody's back online. Okay. Today also is the yard site of my father, Lord Shalom, third yard site. The participants around here, we also started a Sefer in his honor, who was Zecha, and uh, Hashem should help and bless the family. We should be able to pay for it quickly and finish it quickly in Yerushalayim Merakadish. Very, very prominent safer locally, fellow I went to yeshiva with all my life, not all my life, many years, he's actually from it, so it couldn't have been all our lives, a person should put judges, policemen, We know that in the Torah we have chukim, edus chukim and mishpatim. The three types of mitzvahs, the three types of commandments, the edus that give testimony, the chukim that we don't understand the answers, the reasons to, and the mishpatim. The mitzvahs, the mishpatim, that are common sense. Don't steal, don't kill. Actually, let me rephrase that. Mishpatim is the only thing that practically makes the Torah, God forbid, not be nitzchis, not be perpetuated. Because 
ultimately Teda is perpetual in the few old generations, and Teda comes into every play, the play of all our daily lives, throughout and forever. However, mankind being what it is today, society being what it is today, almost plugs holes in that, God forbid. In that when we said Mishpatim are mitzvahs such as don't kill, don't steal, etc. Today, in this generation, unfortunately, because of the, gen- the degeneration, the de- people, the downgrade, etc., they find different twists to these types of things. Don't steal if it means such and such. Don't kill if I can't get away with it practically, etc., etc. There are many, many things today that almost make the terror look like it's, God forbid, obsolete. We're drinking together tonight, Adam? Yeah, I'm very, very, I'm, you should know, L'chaim to you. I'm still shell-shocked of the fact that you're not coming to the wedding. Who has the cat? The cat is... The few people have the cat, but... Ooh, la, la. You see, now I'm in trouble, because if you came for the shir tonight, for my father's honor, I have to watch out that we have an old... Um, not almost an unwritten pact. We only see each other once a week. And I don't want God forbid to get deprived tomorrow night for that. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you the same thing Shekhiyana tomorrow. Ah, okay. We'll <laughs> be a different type of Shekhiyana tomorrow. Um, break that pack. On top of the uh, thing that I, where I said, there's Mazenus in the other book. There's the package of the stack of, of uh, DVDs. Can you bring two? Okay, take three. No, 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 I'm disturbed anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> chaser? Chocolate. Oh, you like chocolate, yes. So when we say those shaved and shaved and titanlacha, it's almost. Almost a given. Of course, I have to have police watching over us. How am I to talk with that man? Of course, we have to establish police. We have to see to it that community is ruled the way it needs to be ruled. Why all of a sudden would the Torah have to tell this to us? as if we would think that it didn't exist, and more so, today's society, it's almost a chuchatlula, it's almost a total contradiction to what the Pasha actually talks about. We go, jump a moment to the end of the Pasha, and at the end of the Pasha, the Torah tells us, about a din called Egla Rufa.
a person in a field was found dead one of the sons and they didn't have the modern technology of today they didn't have um, cams or <coughs> recorders out in the fields in those days and they also couldn't figure out with all the modern technology with all the p- fingerprints etc this person was found dead in the field he's dead in the field like the expression dead in the water and if they tried to make it <laughs> Mano says hi you're on Regards. <laughs> he sends back regards. Uh, he knew. He knew because <laughs> what I said before. <laughs> the once a week. Uh-huh. <laughs> he just got back from Israel actually yesterday. He was there for a long time, no? Yeah. Yes, yeah, and it's good by the shviga. Get pampered by the shviga. Yeah. In the olden days, the shviga used to be the one that you know. That they used to make, they used to kibitz at, and they used to say he's going to cut the guy in half. And <laughs> gonna, today the shigar is a whole different story. The shigar. They try to be nice because there's too many bad shigar jokes. Yeah, they try to, they try to take away the, uh, the stigmas. Yeah, the I stigmas, stereotypes. Stereotype. Stereotype. <laughs> and um, Terry tells us the man was found dead in the field. Okay, he says she's not a shvigah, she's great. Anyway, (laughs) your wife's sitting by the shir also, Ah. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) the, um, my sincere apologies, I fasted today, my father's yard and, um, ran myself a little late so I haven't eaten yet so at least I have to hydrate quick the man was found dead in the field the terror tells us they measure to the nearest field nearest city and the elders of this town are culpable the elders of this town are culpable God forbid but they have to deal with the burial, they have to deal with the case, shall we say. But the main thing they have to say is, our hands did not spill this blood. The whole process of how they take the egla, the calf, and they take it to the land, to the, where there's water, and there's, the land has never been, the whole thing that's done, we're not going to go into the mitzvah itself, because that's what Yaakov did when Yosef left him and um, yeah, he didn't see him again for 17 years if I start telling you about it now I can't afford to lose any of you for 17 years Um, the idea though is that the man was found dead person that was found dead Someone has to take the responsibility. And when the man says, the Canaanim stand there, the elders of the town say, we are not culpable. Many different reasons for this. 
a town needs to be established, a town needs to be set up in a way that people, society knows and accepts when a person comes by, a person comes through town, there's a hospitable place to stay, there's food, etc. The person doesn't have to go out onto the field and go live in the field and sleep in the field and therefore ultimately, God forbid, die either of hunger or of whatever might have gotten him out in the field. Thereby the elders are saying that we know you elders did not kill this person physically, but the blood would be on the hand of a person, the hand of the elders, if the city does not conduct itself the way it should. It doesn't necessarily mean these were the sages or the rabbis of the city. Mm-hmm. The elders of the town are the ones that people are supposed to look up to. Unfortunately, in today's society, it's not as such. The Torah also will talk about, in the end of the Pasha, of the expansion, when Mashiach comes, of the Holy Land, and the addition of the cities of refuge. We all know when Mashiach will come, there will be no need for the cities of refuge. If there be no city, there be no death. If there be no death, then what is the expansion? Why additional three more cities of refuge? According to Rambam, when Mashiach comes, the world will continue living the way it is. Will continue existing the way it does. The only difference will be we will not be under government rule. If we would say this in communist Russia, we would have long been shot. The yoke of the government would no longer be upon us. Wonderful, wonderful experience. Why? Because the oppression that the government causes interferes with a person's study of Torah and doing of mitzvahs. And the oppression of the workforce that a person has to go through, that the way a person has to be totally, totally captured by their work, affects and doesn't allow them to do and to complete the way they should their daily life. This in turn even affects sometimes coming to weddings, because they can't give up time from work. Because there's a Shabbos, there's a Yom Tif. Interestingly, to hear in this decadent world, in this lowly world, to hear every so often a shine, a light, a glimmer of light, to see this is very, very, very encouraging. I was now with one of my daughters by a dressmaker. I didn't go in, there was nowhere to park. But she comes out and tells me, Shah, I was there for an hour, don't have it. You sound like you got it if there was nowhere to park. And the black man, the African-American that works there, woman, the dressmaker is a woman, but the African-American man working there, 
is talking about the truth of the Tera and the greatness of Tera. How he studies the Tera and studies the Talmud and the greatness and the brilliance and the... Imagine how hard it is to do that, to get a Jew to do that. And here we have the Schwarze, who oh, you wouldn't imagine. This. So the world ultimately does have every so often this. But on the other hand, when the terror begins to talk to us and tell us, we have to set up Shaftim and Shaitrim, police and judges. The tailor immediately tells us of a little bit of an issue. A little trivial problem. <laughs> Do not turn. Do not deviate from Torah, from Mishpat, from the law. But even more so, the Torah tells us, do not take bribes. (laughs) In the very same sentence, practically, of Shaftim V'Shaftim Titim V'Cha, the Torah is turning around and saying, you know what, they're judges, and yes, they are police, but they're vulnerable to bribes, they're vulnerable to other things. When we were when we were in, when we were in Venezuela, there's a certain highway. When you come out of the tunnel, that has solid lines, and in these solid lines, they have numbers: 20, 40, 60. I don't know what the numbers were. 40, 60, 80. This is the minimum speed you have to go in this row. But it's the solid lines; you can't cross over. So, it's a very Venezuelan-type-minded thing that either you drive 40 miles an hour in this lane, if you want to get out of this lane, you want to drive 60, you're going to get a ticket. If you are in the 80 lane and you got to get out of there because you can't drive so fast, you want to go into the 60, you're going to get a ticket. you get a ticket for speeding, for going too slow, or for changing lanes. Basically, we have your number. And how, what do they do? So the ticket, you know, in every other country, you know, the, you see all of a sudden the little police car or the uh, sheriff, whatever they're called, highway patrol, go chasing after the poor fellow and catches the fellow and gives the ticket. Not in Venezuela. In Venezuela, they stand on the street, they stand on the highway with their Uzis, and as soon as you cause an infraction, they pull you over. Now, needless to say, if you're a stranger, a novice, you don't realize what's going on, you definitely pull over because someone's waving an Uzi at you. But if you know the Venezuelans, especially their... You just keep going. And it has happened more than once that they unloaded an Uzi and killed some kid in a third floor window somewhere while trying to get a motorcyclist on the street. It's just, uh, they have no idea what they're doing with that machine gun. But, 
we were new in the country, and we pulled over. The fellow comes over, they come from all sides, they, they surround us, and roll down the window. Now, you don't push down a button in those days. Those days there was a handle on the door. You rolled it down the window. And the first question the officer said was not, do you know what you did? Do you have a license registration? Do you have a passport or a cedula or anything like that? How much money do you have? That was the first question. How, cuanto dinero tienen? We were freaked out. We, we, in America, you, 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 you know, I had an occasion. How I'm going off on this tangent, I don't know. I had once an occasion. We went on a vacation. We went on a vacation. We went on a vacation to Washington with our family, with my brother-in-law and his family. On the way back, the children. Uh, my wife was sitting in those days, pre car seat days. Before my limit on the drinking, so you had to pick up. We had the, two of the children were sitting in my wife's lap, and they needed to go to the bathroom. And we were getting near. We told this story already before. The kids of the the, the state I pulled into because my wife said she'd pull out of there right away to a handicapped parking. When I came outside, the cop wanted to give me a ticket. He wanted to arrest me. I don't know what he wanted. Anyway, long story short, he was very ni- nice and kind and passionate. And I told him I'd like to repay him for his kindness. The face of this officer at the time was priceless. He was in total shock. He had this look on his face. Do you have any idea what you just said? You're openly telling me you want to bribe me? So I said to him, excuse me, I'm not bribing you. You already let me go. You told me I can go. I'd like to repay you. I'd like to thank you. Anyway, we're not going to go back into that whole story. But the idea... Back to Venezuela. Why not? I gave him a blessing that he, because he had lost a child. He had only one child. He lost a child. So I gave him a blessing he would have a healthy child. And when he heard, when he heard that, he, he was so touched... I, I started walking away. He says, calls me back. He says, Rabbi, he says, would you give me that in writing? And I said, yes. And I wrote it up for him that he should have a child as compassionate and kind to Jews as he is. And I gave him the paper and he calls me back again. I said, what? He says, you didn't write your phone number. And he called me 10 months later. Yeah? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. So, the Venezuelan cops here called us over, pulled us over, and they wanted to know how much we had. We were mortified. It's it's a cash 22. If we actually take out money, and they're truly law-abiding citizens, we're going to sit. On the other hand, they didn't look like they were, they, they were joking. They looked like they meant business. We actually wanted to make business. So we, we scratched together, I don't know why, I mean, well, we never carried money with us anyway, but we managed to scratch together approximately 150 bolivares at 4 bolivares a dollar. 
and I think maybe we had like three, four dollars in the and the guy was fuming. He says, There's no way that's all you have. And we were we were practically crying. We were eighteen, nineteen year old guys. In a, in a strange country, we barely understood the language at the time also. So between the language barrier and, and what's going on here, it was quite a traumatic experience. And I don't remember how much they took, whatever they took. We took, we gave them whatever we had, and we, we uh, hightailed out of it, said at least. So in Venezuela, yes, bribes were the ways to live. And that worked everywhere. We needed the papers, we needed to have our cedula, the... Um, like the to that Zahut of Venezuela, so also we were sent down to the. Uh, wow, how scary is this? We were sent down to the Minister of Interior. His name was Senor Santander. I don't remember what I had for dinner last night. <laughs> As a matter of fact, even worse today. I was on Brooklyn and Eastern Parkway, and my wife called me and said she has to go out. Please come home with the car. I'm coming home with the car. She says, "Don't park because I'm leaving." And I, by the time I got a next a block and a half further, which is in front of my house, I couldn't find parking. Yeah, what's your bank? Santander. I didn't know where to park. I was looking for parking, and I just three minutes before my wife told me, "Don't look for parking." So how I remember Senor Santander's name is beyond me. Anyway, I guess long-term memory is better than the short term. Yeah. Yeah. The video is frozen. Why is the video frozen? Is it still frozen? You choose to lose. Am I unfrozen? It's hot in here. Okay, I'm still frozen? No. The video is still frozen. How can the video be frozen? Somebody turn off the English. Didn't you just say you were hot? No, the video is. Let me put it back on. What happened? Whoa. I did something wrong. Maybe not. Is my video back on? Someone type if my video is back on. It's not on for sure now. Okay, hold on. Now we're back on the air? It's coming up. I hope we're still on. Okay. Audio is fine. But is the video working? I see a movie, yeah. I don't know. You just moved. Oh, okay, the guy doesn't have video on his phone. Okay, I gotta add somebody here. Once someone just signed on from Chile and he wants uh, to be added on to the shear. Hold on, oh gosh, oh, here he is. One second, folks. This is ridiculous because I can't, I have to have somebody just do this so that I don't get Why disturbed. Do okay. Okay. So when we talk about, so even then we went for our cedula. Before going for Asadi, we were told to go talk to Mr. Santander because Mr. Santander was already paid. Mm. Mm. He already had the money. When as soon as we walked in, there were ten bachrim. We came in there, and he said, um, "Oh, you're from the yeshiva." We had to tell him a name of somebody that we came from. He said, "No problem." He called us in, took our papers, everything was stamped, and we were on our way. Something that usually takes two, three days to sit there. Mm. Who is spraying what now in the house? Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's better. It's, yeah, it's nail polish. Lovely. Okay. Okay. All of a sudden, the Pasuk says, And worse than that, the Torah says, Why can you not take Sheikhad? Why can you not take a bribe? 
Ki Hashoichad, because this bride. Now, there are many different laws in the Torah that tell us you're allowed to do, you're not allowed to do. We may do this, we may not do that. Why all of a sudden is the Torah telling us a reason? Why? But it's not a reason. It's almost an effect. It's not almost. It is the effect that the Sheikhar has. Ki why can you not take Sheikhad? It blinds the eyes and perverts, perverts legitimate words. But of whom? Of who, says the Torah? Chachomim and Sadikim. Mind-boggling. If they are a Chachim and they are a Tzadik, what are they doing taking bribes? So they have to see. They have to know. The story of the Abterov. So the story of the Abterov and the story of the Abterov. Many different stories of people that were given bribes without them even knowing it. And it distorted their thought. Whereas they are still Chachamim and Sadikim. And they would never accept a bribe per se. But if the bribe was put in their property, if the bribe was given to them, they automatically become blinded. And therefore the Torah, when it says key, it's not the reason and it's not the cause and it's not telling us the effect, but rather telling us that this makes a distortion in the person's mind. It doesn't distort, the per- it doesn't make the person different. It doesn't cause the person to be any less. We're not going to tell you that there are no people that take bribes. We're not going to tell you that there are people that are perfect. Oh boy, what does that mean now? But the fact of the matter is that a chacham and a tzaddik sitting on a case can run into this problem. And therefore it is possible when we say it doesn't mean to the person, to the mayor or to the governor or to the congressman or the assemblyman. It talks about the person, each and every person in his own life. The person has the gateways of his body, the eyes and the ears, etc. And this teaches a person that they have to have a jurisdiction and a ruling over each and every part and organ of their body. The only part of the body that we can't really control is the heart. It's not protected. The nose has the nostrils, the ear has the lobes, the mouth has the lips, the eyes have the lids. The heart, or the mind for that matter, 
are unprotected to infect. And therefore, the person has this obligation of shaytim v'shaytim titen l'chal to put upon yourselves these judges and these policemen through learning Teda, through keeping dinim. <coughs> Therefore, this idea of Titan Lakhashaitrim is a bottom line concept of how a person has to rule their lives. Today was my father's yard site. And this week we started the month of El. In the month of El, we have to take in retrospect, we have to start to see what and how we have to fix and rectify what has been happening over the course of the year. We have to see what is it that we did wrong. What is it that we have to fix? What is it that we have to improve? It is very easy to point fingers. It is very easy to say, because of this it happened, because of poverty, because of money, because of... Very, very easy thing to do. But the tailor tells us that is not a way to go. The way to live is living their own our own lives. My father, Shalom, worked seven days a week. Now, if anybody turns off the shear at this point, they'll feel very bad for me. He had a job six days a week, and, and whatever he was working at, different times of his life, different things. On Shabbos, he was a chazan. He was a chazan in a shul, and he lived in Barapak, and that's why we gave out a DVD today to the people that are here of my father's singing. You're not going to be able to see anything here. Of my father's singing either by weddings or, or in concert. My son says it's 399 shipping. Yes. <laughs> Call the number on your screen. <laughs> Call the number you now see across going across your screen. Yes, one eight hundred sing along. Yes. Father's brother in law. Father in law. He lives in Borough Park, which he moved in as a few uh, thirteen months old. But there were no shuls for a chazan in Borough Park at the time. So the shtelas were all over. He had one time in Psaic, New Jersey, which meant every Friday he had to run to New Jersey. He came back late Matzah Shabbos. He had a shtela in Brighton Beach. Had to walk Shabbos morning, had to be by the arm at 8.30. Had to be by the arm at 8.30. Or actually, the shul started at 8.30. So he had to be there before. 
and the walk is an hour and a half from his house. So seven o'clock, like a clock, he was on the way ready after going to the mikveh. And this was in rain, hail, sleet, snow, hot, cold. There was no difference. He did this walk to Brighton Beach like a trooper. He got upgraded to a shul in Kingsway Jewish Center. The building is nicer. It became now a 55-minute walk. I have no compliments for the show <laughs> they sent my father away actually and owed him money bounced checks on him and ironically if they sent him away with a good reason they might be right but from there he left Kingsway where he was making whatever making for the course of the year they slept from him three times a week, uh, three times a month, to come daven in a shul. He left the Kingsway Jewish Center, went to a little shul um, in in Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee, a little shul called Baron Hirsch Synagogue. The Baronhurst Synagogue is the largest Orthodox shul in the world. Two and a half thousand people came to Daven. He had a 40-person choir. You had to fly. How they got there, I don't know. But he, they flew him out for slichas, and he flew home, flew him back for Rosh Hashanah, flew him home, flew him back for Yom Kippur, and home, obviously. And for those three little trips, he made more than Kingsway paid for the entire year. No cat? Where's your cat tonight? <laughs> it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. No, no, she wants to hear the story better. But my father was a very, fun, a very, very colorful character. When I was in Venezuela, the phone calls were prohibitive. You couldn't make a phone call to New York unless you had a bank account on its own. And they didn't call you either because it's the same thing. We didn't have Skype to all over the world. Back in 77, 78... So I get a letter from my father one time. He was walking to the Kingsway Jewish Center on Shabbos. And there was a terrible snow. And in New York snow, not like the last few years. In New York it snowed. It snowed for a few weeks, it snowed. And the snow was a pretty severe issue. But he trudged his way to the shul because he didn't want to have a problem. Because he was loyal and faithful. And whereas the Kingsway in the snow, people found a good reason to stay home. And instead of this five, six hundred people in Omul Shabbos, they had maybe eighty people. So there's no everybody would have understood the Chazan didn't make the fifty five minute normal walk 
which took him an hour and a half now because walk in the snow. But he wouldn't. He didn't take shortcuts. He didn't have any excuses. And he's walking to the shul, and they wish to help. And these Italian Shkotsim were standing outside their houses, outside their apartment building. And they saw an old Jew walking. Oh, he wasn't old. They saw a Jew walking. Started throwing snowballs at him. My father was uh, a fighter, usually. Back in Siberia, he got himself into a lot of skirmishes, shall we say. But here, he's on his way to Shul. And he wasn't actually in the mood of getting into a skirmish in the snow. So he did what was second best for him. He turned around and he told, he pointed at the Scotsman and said, I don't know who threw that, but I just want to tell you, whoever threw it, Within 24 hours, your arm is going to shrivel and fall off. <laughs> now, the Italian, average Italian guy of, of yesteryear were extremely superstitious. Extreme, extremely superstitious. And this scared the heck out of these guys. So much so that my father continued walking and the mother, the old Italian mother, came running out of the house in her house coat. She didn't put on a coat, she didn't have boots, nothing. Chasing my father down the street and fell around his, by his feet and held her on around his feet, begging and crying and pleading, take the curse off, take the curse off. <laughs> so my father said, let him go pray. <laughs> let him go pray. And you want to know the miracle? His arm didn't fall off. <laughs> Uh, sure it didn't. But on the other te- on the other on the flip side I know of people today that are Shema Shabbos that are putting on film daily and they attribute it to my father who never suffered from them. As much as he talked to them, as much as they used to fight and taunt and try to almost humiliate. But on the bottom line, today they hear and they talk and they think about him and they shed a tear. In Siberia he grew up. He was born actually in a town, in a city called Sanz. And from Sanz, they went to a place called Zagush. Zagush is basically a resort town. My grandfather, Shalom, also was a chazan and a sheikhit. And being the sheikhit and the chazan of the town, he was paid well, he was compensated well. So much so, they had the only house that hot and cold running water. Yimach Shemam when the Nazis took over the town... That was the use for headquarters. They took that house over. Baruch Hashem, my grandmother, Hashem, was blessed with intuition and always moved three days ahead. She said, we got to leave. And the kids all and the people 
the people in town obviously were not leaving, but even my family would said, look at our house, how can we go wander? And she said, we have to leave. And they ended up in Siberia. My grandmother on the road in route managed to pick up a bunch of extras. Strays. Strays. Orphans. And there were many such during the war. And these orphans came into the house and they were taken in as children. So much so, the orphans were fed before her own children. And she would tell them, you have a mother and a father. They have nothing. At least of them have some food. Mind you, we're not talking about the rib steaks or sushi dinners. They were getting a piece of black bread and onions sometimes. On occasion they found a herring, which my father would never touch with a large pole. Um, as a matter of fact, when my grandmother cut the bread after she cut the herring with the same knife, my father refused to eat it. But he arrived here to America at 16 years of age. And whereas the regular 16-year-old today would say, after such a life, after being tortured and tossed and turned, after not having a proper education, after having to give up my straw, not my bed, my straw, that I had to lie down on, or give up that piece of black bread for some other kid. My mother abused me. This was neglect. What kind of horrific life did I have? Anyone listening to that one out of context would have a blast. But no. My father, Allah Shalom, Tzlang and his older brother, Yechiel, his little brother that was killed in a car accident here in 77. They came here with God-fearing intent. They came to Yeshiva, they went into Yeshiva, they sat in Yeshiva as long as they could. And my father merited from all the other things that he merited tremendous, tremendous adoration from the Rebbe. There was at one time the Rebbe came into, into the room to 770 by a coffin's night, late at night. My father was standing there. And the Rebbe put it my, his hand on my father's shoulder to dance. My father was melting. But the Rebbe was dancing with him. The other fellows saw what was going on and they were concerned for my father's well-being. So they joined the circle and they were trying to hold my father up. As it turned into a circle, my father tried to lower his hand from the Rebbe's shoulder. And the Rebbe's words were, Don't tear yourself away from me, Mesha. And as many times I heard this from my father, he didn't have... I heard him say it, but he said it so naturally. He said it so... 
But when I heard it from somebody else who heard it, who was there at the time and heard the Rebbe saying it to him, I realized what my father really, really. My father passed away today on Dalit El, the third year. And the year he passed away, Dalit El, I made a wedding. My son Ezra Zangazund got married. Twenty days later. My father was by the engagement, but unfortunately not by the wedding. Shiva finished seven days after. And we went to my father's house to take his farm, his books, from the house. Picking up one of the books, an envelope fell out of the, envelope, of the book. Don't get excited. There was no inheritance. <laughs> there was more than inheritance, actually. It was an envelope from the Rebbe. In that envelope, there were two letters from the Rebbe. And with this, I'll leave you, and if you sleep tonight, you're more of a man than I am. One of the two letters, mind you, this is a week and a half before my son's wedding, one of the two letters was the condolence letter that the Rebbe sent to my father when his father passed away. And the second was my parents' wedding letter. In the same envelope. So the message to us was how my father is telling us that our goal, our mission is to continue in our connection with the Rebbe, in our shaftim v'shaytim titan l'chol, in giving ourselves and undertaking ourselves, our connection directly with the Rebbe, and we should take merit to see as we enter now the Melech Basada, we should see take the revelations and the ultimate redemption, starting with tonight's shir, going into tomorrow's wedding, and we should all dance with joy and happiness with Mashiach Tzidkenu. Shabbat Shalom. Amen.